Well, good morning again, Lindsley Avenue. I appreciate the opportunity once again to share some thoughts with you from the Word of God. This morning, I wanted us to discuss one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation that Jesus writes a letter to. You can call these seven letters the last message that Jesus has to many different congregations. And the one I wanted to talk about today is the one that I believe in many ways directly applies to Lindsley Avenue, perhaps more closely than the others. And that's the Church of Philadelphia, the church at the open door. Take a look with me for a few minutes at what is going on in the city of Philadelphia in modern day Asia Minor, and then what Jesus says to the church, how it applied to the church of the day, and then how it would apply to Lindsley Avenue today. So come along with me. When the book of Revelation is written, John is on the island of Patmos. You can see it on the island down in toward the middle, a little bit on the left side. And the message that Jesus brings to John, the apostle John on the island of Patmos, is a series of messages to seven different churches. And the order in which the churches are addressed, in many ways, is a circular pattern. He writes and sends a message first to Ephesus, then north to Smyrna, north to Pergamum, kind of a southeast to Thyatira, then to Sardis, then to Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. I always like to envision the idea of a Pony Express rider taking the message from John that he receives from Jesus to these seven churches and rides in a circuit all the way around. So this morning we're talking about Philadelphia, the second to the last church over there to the right uh, on the map. And talking about Philadelphia, of these seven cities, Philadelphia was the youngest of the seven cities. It was founded by colonists from Pergamum during the reign of Attalus II, somewhere in the neighborhood of 160 to 140 BC. The city was named Philadelphia, uh, that's a city name and a, a term of, of which we are all very familiar, the, which means one who loves his brother because of Attalus's love for his brother Eumenes was so great and so well known. It's located at the border of several different provinces or old countries. Mysia, Lydia, and Phrygia. And what this did is it made Philadelphia a border town, a town on the outskirts of several different um, nation states, several different regions. There was no Roman garrison stationed in Philadelphia. Some of these cities had Roman troops stationed there all the time. Some did not. The reason that there was no Roman garrison stationed at Philadelphia, is there was no real danger of invasion of Philadelphia from external uh, hostile forces. This town had a specific purpose. It was to be a missionary town for Greek culture and Greek language, and its work succeeded beyond imagination. By the early years of the first century, a couple of hundred years, 200 years roughly after its founding, the people in that province of Lydia, the Lydians had forgotten their own language and were all but Greeks, not only in language, but culture and their way of thinking. By the time of Jesus's letter to them, Philadelphia had been given an open door to spread Greek ideas for two to 300 years. So as a missionary town for Greek culture and language, Philadelphia had served its purpose well because it had spread that culture and language very, very effectively. Geography also played a very large part to the Philadelphians. 
It was located on the edge of a great plain, this wonderfully large Greek name here, the Katakaimune. Uh, I probably will never say that again. The burned land, the burned land. It was a great volcanic plain with marks of lava from previous explosions and uh, ashes everywhere. Such land is very, very fertile. You might ask, well, why do people stay on land that is uh, subject to volcanic explosions? Because when the volcano explodes, the material that it throws out often when the eruptions cease is some of the most um, fertile land you can get. Things grow very well there. So as long as you are growing things and you're not having an eruption, it's a very, very good place to be, very, very fertile. It was the center of a great grape growing area and a producer of fine wines in this area here of the Philadelphians. Of course, as I said, such areas have risks too. In AD 17, a great earthquake hit this region. Many times earthquakes are in the same general vicinity or along fault lines where you will have volcanic eruptions. The same earthquake had devastated Sardis, a nearby town, also one of the seven churches that Jesus writes to, and 10 other cities in the region. In the other cities, the earthquake hit and was over. But in Philadelphia, the aftershocks from this great earthquake and other smaller earthquakes continued for years. Strabo, Strabo called uh, the Philadelphia a city full of earthquakes. Strabo, a historian, a geographer, a great writer in the uh, time, had called Philadelphia a city full of earthquakes. You know, people can respond in an emergency. Uh, when it seems to happen over and over, however, it's one thing to panic during an emergency and then get out of town or get out of the city. But when it's continuous, it wears us down. You know, it's one thing to respond to a pandemic. Uh, it's another when the pandemic never seems to go away and it just wears people down over time. So in this case, one earthquake could be quite devastating and cause all sorts of reactions. But if it continues, earthquake next week, earthquake next month, next year, if the city actually developed, as Strabo said, a reputation, a circumstance where there were earthquakes all the time, that would begin to affect everybody up in their heads. Strabo de uh, describes the scene. He said, aftershocks were an everyday occurrence. Great cracks appeared in most of the houses. Over uh, one part of the city would be in ruins today, and in a few months, another part would be in ruins. Much of the population took to living outside the city proper in huts, things not made of stone, fearing to go into the city at all in case you had falling stones and masonry. I mean, if you've got a shake and you've got a stone built house, all it takes is one little shake, a stone falls on somebody and they are no longer with us. So much of the population left the city proper and started living outside of the city walls, outside of the city as it had been built up, in huts or houses or booths that were a lot less dangerous should the shaking come back. Those daring to live in the city, people who continued to live in the city were considered mad. They spent their time shoring up the buildings but frequently dashing for open spaces in the streets when the aftershocks inevitably came. Those days were never wholly forgotten. I mean, in AD 17, you had the really big earthquake Aftershocks would continue for some, some time, but you know, over time, it eventually starts you know, getting a little calmer, but you don't forget things. You don't forget 
an emergency, one-time emergency, but you certainly wouldn't forget things that seem to continue for years and years. And so subconsciously, it seems, people waited and watched for the ground to shake, even if it wasn't going to shake. You can imagine sitting there, was that shake? You know, I'm almost you're thinking that it permeates your mind. And so people developed a habit, uh, we are told, that when they entered a room, they kept an eye out for where the nearest exit was. When I'm sitting where I am subconsciously or perhaps even consciously, I know that I need to go over there to get out of where I am. If it starts shaking, I am bolting for the door. When the AD 17 earthquake hit, Caesar Tiberius had been as generous to Philadelphia as to Sardis. Philadelphia was so grateful for this help from Caesar that they changed the name of their city to Neo-Caesarea for a while, the new city of Caesar, certainly giving honor for, to, the gener uh, to Caesar for the generosity that they had been shown. When Caesar Vespasian uh, became the ruler, Philadelphia again changed its name to Flavia, which was Vespasian's family name. Neither name stayed long, but they were open to a new name. Here are some pictures of uh, the area of Philadelphia as it exists today. Very, very little remains of what the city looked like in the first century. Many of the, uh, the, in, the things that you see here that appear to be in ruins date well after the first century. Uh, the Byzantine period, the period in the three, four, five, six hundred AD period would have had things build up here. But I want to show a couple of pictures because we need to realize that when we're reading about a city or a group of people in the New Testament, when we're reading about an event, a story from the life of Jesus, when we're reading about something in the book of Acts, these were real people. Every bit is alive, every bit is full of joy and sorrow as you and I are. I mean, when you see a few people in this, I see a man on the right side at the bottom. I can even tell he appears to be wearing sandals. I wonder where he bought them from. I wonder where he's going. I wonder what he's thinking. How did his day yesterday go? The people in the middle of the picture with an umbrella walking out of the gate, it appears from where these ruins are located, a park or some kind of a refuge. Where's he going? What did he do the next day? These are people, and these people were created by God. People living today were people living in the past, had exactly the same hopes and fears that we will often face. So by trying to put a picture to history, I want to make sure we always realize that these are not merely words on a page, that these are, in fact, real live people with the same uh, challenges that they had to overcome that we may face. Here's another picture. Obviously, you got some uh, sheep out here in the front, but you can again see ruins in the past. And you can tell there is a great plain out there with mountains in the, in the background. Again, this is a picture that would show where some of the higher peaks may have been. Some of these may have been volcanic in the past, but you can still see grapevines in the uh, forefront where the land is still very fertile even to this day. Let's look now at uh, how it changed over time. In later days, Philadelphia became a very great city. Again, that's one of the reasons why there's not a lot of ruins from the first century. Hundreds of years later, the Turks in Islam flooded across the Asia Minor uh, pen, uh, Peninsula or province and really were held off only by the Byzantine, the East, 
the Western Roman, no, the Eastern Roman Empire, um, and held it off there where the uh, Byzantines were in Constantinople. When every other city had capitulated to the invading Islamic forces, Philadelphia stood firm. For centuries, it was a free Greek Christian in a broad sense city in the middle of not only pagans, but Islamic peoples who had taken over the land around them. Now here's interesting, of the seven churches of Asia in Revelation chapter two and three, only in Philadelphia of all seven of those cities, is there any remnant of a broadly Christian people today? All the others, Christianity has disappeared. So what does Jesus say to this church of Philadelphia, this church, uh, the city that was created to be a missionary city in the middle of a people that needed to learn Greek ways and Greek culture and to a city that held on to the, the approach of Jesus, with the mind of Jesus in their hearts long after all the other cities had in fact turned away. Well, let's take a look to the church beginning in verse seven, chapter three of the book of Revelation, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy, Jesus speaking, these things says he who is holy. In this statement, Jesus applies another description of God to himself, holy. All through the Old Testament, God is the one who is described as holy, particularly in Isaiah, song we sing. These words will seem familiar to you. Isaiah 6.3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 6.5, to whom will you compare me or shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Isaiah 43.15, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your King. Now the title is taken and applied to Jesus. Holy means different, separate from, not the same as. God is holy because he is uniquely different. God is not a man. We are not God. And so God is holy. We are to become more holy by living differently than the people around us. The worst thing that can happen is if you have a Christian and someone who is not a Christian and an external observer can't tell the difference because what that says is, is that the Christian is not living in any holy manner. God is holy because he is different from men. He has that quality of life and existence that men can never have by themselves. It belongs to him alone. To say that Jesus is holy, which Jesus here says um, himself, means that Jesus shares the life and existence and the qualities of God. He is God. He who is holy, he who is true. Sometimes we see true and we think true false. That's not the meaning here. This is true as in real. Think of the true vine, the true bread, the true light, Jesus' statements from the Gospel of John. That's not the true vine as opposed to the false vine, but the real versus not real. The real bread versus the not real bread. The real light as opposed to the not real light. In Jesus, we are confronted with no shadowy outline of truth, no vague semblance of what true is. We are confronted with truth itself. And if I were to change that slide right now, I would make that a capital T because Jesus presents final truth. And when we see Jesus, we see what the truth is. He who has the key of David 
who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Now, if you and I are reading that, we may look at that and say, I'm, I'm really not sure what that's talking about. But what we have here is an Old Testament reference. Jesus says, these things says he who is holy, who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Let's look at the Old Testament reference here. Hezekiah had had a faithful steward named Eliakim. Access to Hezekiah was only allowed through Eliakim. In Isaiah chapter 22, Isaiah heard God say this about Eliakim. The key of the house of David I will lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Now there's where it is. Jesus is using this reference to Eliakim in terms of Eliakim providing access to Hezekiah from Isaiah to himself in terms of access to God. Now, for you and I, unless we really are very attuned to Old Testament studies, that would probably just you know, fly right over our heads. But to the people who at this point had very little, if any, of the New Testament, they may have had some of the writings of Paul, but the entire New Testament was almost certainly not in any complete form at the end of the first century here in the city of Philadelphia. They would have been studying, as the people in Berea had, the scriptures to see whether things they were being told were true, but those would have been the Jewish scriptures, the Greek Old Testament, if you will. And they were a lot more familiar with the prophets than I, I really say probably many or most of us were. And so when Jesus said, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens, they would have immediately gone to the Old Testament scriptures and they almost certainly would have found this and understood Jesus is the only way to gain access to God. And when Jesus opens up that access, no one will turn it off. And when Jesus shuts that access to someone, no one is going to be able to open it, just as Eliakim had had that same power of access to Hezekiah. Now, Jesus and Jesus alone is the one through whom we have access to God. It is through prayer, but also ultimate access to God in heaven. Through what Jesus did for us, we are going to be able to boldly enter the, the throne room of God, and we will have access to God to go live with him once this life is over. Through Jesus, the door to God is unlocked because he has the key. Jesus then says something that really ought to scare all of us in many ways, if we're not prepared. I know your works. He says that to every single congregation. All seven of these churches hear that from Jesus. I know your works. I think he says that to all seven because churches reading this years later, even a couple of thousand years later, need to know Jesus is still very aware of what we are doing and what we are involved in. He knows what each and every congregation is doing to be involved in spreading the gospel and loving our neighbor. He says, I know your works. Same for every church. Look what he says to them then, specifically here at the Church of Philadelphia. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. So what is this open door? A couple of possibilities. One is that you could view this open door as a door of missionary opportunity. After all, the city had been founded to spread Greek culture in the province of Asia. Jesus may be indicating that you can spread the gospel in the same way. He can be saying, look, 
those of you in Philadelphia, you all know your history, that you were uh, situated here, you were founded to spread the Greek language and Greek culture, and you've done a very good job of that. In the same way, you are uniquely positioned to spread the gospel, to spread the idea of getting to know God and turning your back on these false pagan religions. The door may also be Jesus himself. After all, in John 10, Jesus said, I am the door. He may be saying to the church, I have set before you an open door myself. And since I am the open door, you can enter through me and gain access to God. And no one will be able to take or shut this open door. It may also be a door of prayer, another way of thinking of gaining access to God. Because of Jesus, this door of prayer to God is open, and it's an open door that will never be shut. I want to suggest to you, Lindsley Avenue has an open door set before it. Given Lindsley Avenue's unique, very, very unique situation downtown in the inner city, you have the opportunity to spread the uh, missionary uh, sense of Christianity among our, our homeless population, our dispossessed population, many of the poorer uh, individuals in society, perhaps even some of the visitors to Nashville, that congregations 20, 30, 50 miles outside of Nashville will never have. You, Lindsley Avenue, has the door, I really believe, of missionary opportunity to spread the word of God among a group of the population that, let's just face it, by distance and a lack of immediate opportunity are not going to be well served by many of the other sister congregations in town. What will we do with that open door that is sitting in front of Lindsley Avenue? He then says, for you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. The verb tense here, that they have not denied my name, rather than being a continuous action where they continue to not deny uh, Jesus's name, this time it describes one definite act in the past. Apparently they had faced some persecution in the past, some trial, some real problem where they could have denied Jesus and probably gotten off easier. They refused and they had emerged victorious and true to Jesus. Their strength and their power might be small, but if they are faithful, they will enter God's rest. If they have just a little strength, remember what Jesus just said, I have set before you an open door. It doesn't matter how much strength we have, the door is in front of us and the strength that we can get from God is the strength needed to go through it. Remember 1 Peter 4. You know, the one who serves, serves through the strength that God provides so that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We have that opportunity. What will we do with the open door? He says, indeed, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come down and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. There's another Old Testament reference here. Uh, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 60, we read, Also the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you, and all those who despised you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. 
The church is the spiritual Israel, and this statement in Isaiah 60 is fulfilled in us as it was fulfilled in the uh, church here at Philadelphia that Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Because you have kept my commandments, I will keep you. Really and truly, when we follow Jesus's commandments, when we focus on doing what Jesus has asked us to do, we can have confidence that he will keep us. When he says, my command to persevere, if you want, the literal translation of that phrase is the word of my endurance. Endure, right? It's almost a command here to endure. Hang in there. Do not give up. They had endured just as Jesus had endured all sorts of persecution. When we need to endure, Jesus supplies a guarantee. Because you have kept my commandments, I will keep you. Behold, he says to them, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. This would have been very, very vivid. If you think back again to the circumstances in the history of Philadelphia, would have been very, very vivid to them, given their earthquake-prone city. A pillar of the church is a great and honored support of the church. Peter, James, and John were considered pillars in the early church, Galatians 2.9, Paul says that. And you would go out no more. Well, what does that mean here? It could be a promise of grounded character, Overcoming the troubles of life prepares us to live with God. Uh, it can also be a promise of security. Remember, Philadelphia, the aftershocks had continued for years. As I would be sitting here, if there's any kind of shake, I might even not be able to control my desire to run for it. Well, Jesus says to the people of Philadelphia, I know that you have been living in a circumstance physically where you feel like running out the door at the slightest shake. And perhaps even from a persecution standpoint, you may wonder sometimes, should I just run for it to get out of here? Hold on to what you have. And if you overcome, you're going to be a pillar, a strong support. There won't be any more shaking in your life or even in anything you are involved in. And you will never have to run out again. What a wonderful thought of security that Jesus is providing to these people that would have been thinking that way. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. Several things going on here. First, in Asia Minor and pagan uh, circumstances, when a priest had faithfully discharged a lifetime of service, a new pillar was erected in the temple and his name was inscribed on it. And so in, if that's what is being referenced here, if that's what the Philadelphians would have thought about, then it would represent the lasting honor Jesus gives to his faithful servants. It might also reflect the mark that was put on a slave by his owner. Many times a slave would essentially be branded by the owner in order to make sure that we knew this slave belonged to Jimmy over here. Whichever one this is, either way that this would have been thought about by the Philadelphians, it, ref it reflects the idea that the faithful will wear the unmistakable badge of being God's possession because we are.
God's possession. Nothing will in any way separate us from God once we become a member of God's family. Essentially, we are his slaves, his servants, and he knows those who are his. No one knows Jesus's new name. In Revelation 19:12, we read, his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. We don't know this new name, but this new name is going to be written on the faithful. Again, a semblance here of possession a semblance here of possession. Now, when you think about the new name and putting a new name on somebody, think about, again, the history of Philadelphia. All this emphasis on changing names would have meant a lot to the Philadelphians, also known as the Neo-Caesareans, also known as the Flavians. Since they had changed the name of their city a number of times, now Jesus says to them, you've got one remaining name change coming, and you're going to be wearing my name from now on. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So my question, in all these letters to the seven churches, and the, the question we should be asking ourselves a lot, are we listening? We have ears. Are we listening to what the Spirit says to the churches? Are we listening to what Jesus says to the churches? We have the ears if we will only listening. And the more important question here, are we living for him? If you are not yet a member of God's family, you have today, today, to change your life from wrong to right and to become a member of his family. There are many, many people associated with Lindsley Avenue who would be happy, glad to take care of helping you become a member of God's family and having his name put on you. If you are a member of God's family and your life has not been lived in the way that it ought to be lived, uh, in terms of being a member of his uh, family, if you're not living for God, you're living more for yourself, there's good news. That good news is you can get back on track and begin living for God. It takes an expression of remorse for living the way you have been living, repentance, a decision to change your life, and prayer to ask God for forgiving. If any of those circumstances apply to you, I would ask you to make those changes today. At this point, I would like for us to focus on the um, Lord's Supper. We do this every Sunday. We gather together every Sunday. And we do it for the purpose of remembering the Lord's death. The bread that we partake of is the bread that represents his body. And as we partake of that bread, we are to remember what he did for us. He sacrificed his life. He gave his life so that we would have the opportunity to live. So if you will, pray with me before we partake of the bread. Father, we are so thankful for the gift of your son. We are so thankful for everything he has done for us. We are thankful that he gave himself and died on the cross so that we would have the opportunity to become a member of your family. As we partake of this bread, help us to remember what he did for us, and to resolve within ourselves to live for him more each and every day. Your son, we pray. Amen.
The second part of the Lord's Supper involves uh, partaking of the fruit of the vine. When Jesus instituted this, he set aside the bread and the cup. The bread was his body, and the cup, he said, was the blood of the new covenant, which was going to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. We partake of this cup, the fruit of the vine, each week to remember what Jesus did for us, not only by giving his body on the cross, but by shedding his blood, because we are told without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So before we partake of the fruit of the vine, the cup, I would ask that you would pray with me uh, once again. Father, we remember the death of your son this morning. We partake of this fruit of the vine in memory of the blood that your son shed on the cross. Father, we will never, never be worthy of the gift that he gave for us and of your grace. But please help us as we partake of this fruit of the vine to examine ourselves and to recognize that that gift requires a sacrifice from us, the sacrifice of living for you and no longer living for ourselves. Thank you again for that sacrifice. Help us to um, express that love and joy that should fill our lives to you by living our lives for you. To your son we pray. Amen. Not actually part of the Lord's Supper, but it's always a convenient time uh, when this is occurring to partake of a, uh, a, an offering, a uh, giving. Uh, we're not doing that collectively still, although that may change here this month. But uh, I know that you have the opportunities, methods of giving, whether you were gathered together or doing it in some other way as we have purposed. But let's give thanks to God again for the blessings that we have and the opportunity to give back. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we are so thankful for all the blessings that you give to us, the gifts that we receive. Everything we have comes from you. Help us to realize that these things that we have are really not ours, that we have been giving them just for a short time, and that we should be cheerful givers, that we should uh, seek ways to give to help spread the good news and to help serve others, and to show our love for our neighbors. So as we have purposed in our hearts, please help us to give cheerfully. Thank you again for all the blessings that we have in this life and the blessing of your son. It is through him we pray, amen. I wanna thank you for being with us this morning and look forward to the next time we can share some time together.